Welcome back to another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I'm here with Adam. And I'm Daryl. And I'm Caleb. So today's topics we're going to be going through, since we finished through some ecumenical councils last week, we're going to be talking about some different heresies this week. Ooh. Woo! Heresy! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, there we go. Uh, and <laughs> we're going to be focusing on mainly two today. It's going to be Gnostics and Montanists. Um, They're some of the earliest, yeah. yeah. And I always get goofed up from the, well, at least we'll start off by defining what heresy actually is, because it's not necessarily, well, they don't believe what we believe. Yeah, so the the root base of heresy is, imagine you've got a dollar, a dollar bill, and then you've got, how many dimes make a dollar? Ten. Ten dimes. All right. What if you take one of those ten dimes and all of a sudden you make it 25 cents? That's a quarter. It's a quarter. But you, what you've done is you've changed the entire, it's not, it's not a dollar anymore. Yeah. Okay? So heresy is when you take a particular truth and you magnify that particular truth so it's no longer fully true anymore. You, you, you've done something else to it. And then using that, elevating that truth that more than it should be. So you redefine the whole by the part. So it's when you take a particular thing that's true and then you redefine everything else by it. And heresy then isn't false teaching in the sense that somebody got up. I mean, it can be. It can be. And usually when people think about it today, they think about something that's just blatantly contradictory. And heresy is usually not something that starts out contradictory as much as it is something that's the, the overdevelopment of something to the detriment of everything else that is true. And so then heresy, one of the, the qualities that it usually creates is schism. Right. So that, that's, that's the root for heresy. Yeah. Because what it does is, I guess, it mainly goes back to even what of authority to sit there and say what's right and what's wrong, and then try to redefine it in that way. Yes. So it relates to authority. I mean, it relates to doctrine, relates to practice. I mean, there's lots of ways you can think of it. Uh, we usually use it in reference to doctrine or dogma. Yeah. Okay. So would you think Gnosticism? In your personal opinion, do you think that's a heresy? <laughs> well, that doesn't, that doesn't have to be my personal opinion. I mean, the Gnosticism was condemned right out the gate. Um, it, the, the church didn't, it didn't take long for the church to see what Gnosticism was uh, and to condemn it. It took a little bit of time in a little over 100 years for it to, to get stamped out, um, but it was very quickly, very quickly recognized and argued against uh, because Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis which means knowledge. I agree. That's in my notes, right? Okay, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No. Um, I'm glad you're not, you have notes, Caleb. That's good. I like to write things down. Okay. Usually because I forget things. That's all so. right. That's all right. It's good. All right. Uh, so Gnosticism, uh, this is a group of people around, what, one, the first century? Well, around... we, see, we see Gnosticism developing in the latter part of the first century, and it's already got a pretty strong foothold, because when Ignatius in Antioch is writing in about 107 AD, he refers to Docetists, who are a form of Gnostics, a kind of Gnostic, and to the Gnostics at large when he says they do not celebrate the Eucharist, because they do not believe the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. And so what Gnosticism is as a, as a heresy, is it, it's a kind of a, a form of Plato's worldview in his philosophy and then some of the other religious trends at the time, so that the physical world is bad, 
and one of the and it says and to be saved is to have an inner knowledge so that your spirit can get to heaven and you see that developing pretty early because it was a very neoplatonic kind of thought uh people can go check out plutarch if they want to he's he's one of the the pagan priests who popularizes this uh makes it popular again i should say uh but the gnostics are rising at the end of the first century some people think that that's what john is writing about in his letters any spirit that denies that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, right? Because the Gnostics said the physical world was bad. And so it kind of reaches its capstone with Marcion. Marcion was a false teacher in the mid-100s, early mid-100s in and around Rome. And there's some, some evidence he may have been a priest. Um, but he taught that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were different. And so the God of the Old Testament wasn't that intelligent because he created a material world. And the God of the New Testament was the supreme God named Abba, and he was the father of Jesus. And he, and, and he had all these emanations. He had all these energy beings that kind of came out of him, all these other gods and deities and whatnot. And, and uh, the one who, and this is blasphemous, the lowest one of them was named Yahweh, who thought the material world would be good, and he's the God of the Old Testament. And so then, to, in order to save people from the bad material world, Jesus comes, but he doesn't become flesh because the world is bad. So he appears to have become flesh, so that he can tell us the good news, so our souls can be saved. So that's that's kind of the, the core of Gnosticism. Seeing the two the two testaments. Oh, and he he's the first guy, by the way, who makes a new testament. He's the first one who makes an official list of the New Testament. The church hadn't done that yet, and it's about 140, 145 A.D. People hadn't even thought that they should have a solidified books selection of books. And Marcion's the one who kind of kicks that off with a false list. So he keeps all the Gospels, but he edits them to cut out references to the Old Covenant, to the Jews. He keeps just about all of Paul's letters and rejects pretty much everything else. So you see their heresy, you see schism, you see a change to the books of the canon, and you see uh, put, putting the Testaments against each other, so reading the covenants as if they're at odds with each other, and that salvation is something spiritual, and the failure and the rejection to celebrate and keep the sacraments. Those are just a couple of the contours there. I mean, yeah, when I was reading through this, I was like, this is crazy. I think it's, I don't want to say, well, more relevant to today's day age, like what people kind of naturally think. Well, how many times have you heard someone present being saved in a ghostly sense? So today you wouldn't say it's Gnostic. You would say it's neo-Gnostic, meaning that there are traits and attributes of Gnosticism that have resurfaced in contemporary Christian experience in the West. And really, if we want to get more specific and maybe create some more thought for our folks that are listening, neo-Gnosticism creates the soil out of which transgenderism develops that we're dealing with today. So that you have someone who is biologically male, but they say, I feel inside I'm female. And so then they start to change the physical world, which must be bad because it doesn't coincide with the way that I feel. So they start to change the physical world. The cure to Gnosticism is the sacraments, the sacramental life, because the sacraments are the means of grace. This is the cure for Gnosticism in all of its forms, all of its iterations, whether it's neo-Gnostics or Gnosticism in the ancient world, which is what they emphasize. So John and his letters will emphasize the incarnation of the Word, right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Ignatius, uh, he'll say the same thing about the incarnation, but then he'll also say that the Eucharist is the flesh and blood of Jesus, the very medicine of immortality. 
The sacraments are not add-ons to the Christian faith. They are the anchors and the shape of it, the very means of grace it's themselves. And I think it's, it's interesting what he does with the uh, with sacraments by getting rid of them. Mm-hmm. And versus for us, like even like studying this, I'm like, well, that can't be true because I'd have to say that the, the Eucharist is evil. Like right. The Eucharist is bad. And so he, I think he understood that concept, except where, where they went with it was different. So like I would say, well, I have to change my idea because I know that the Eucharist is good mm-hmm. because I, I, like, that is a good thing. So, and I can't keep this idea because these two can't exist at the same time. But if I get rid of the sacraments, then I can keep this idea in my head. Yeah. And I think that's, you see that a lot, a lot of like just different pieces of tradition. And we say, well, I can't think this and hold this tradition at the same time. Therefore, I have to get rid of this tradition or I have to get rid of this idea. And I, that's many times where you are left with. I think that's a logical conclusion, but those things should be kept. You, that we go to the wrong place. When you, when you jump forward, so Ignatius is in 107, jump forward 70 years to Irenaeus, the last of the Apostolic Fathers. He writes extensively about the Gnostics in his massive uh, volume of books called Against Heresies. And he gives us like details about what these people taught, right? And I'm obviously not going to get into all those details, but he's the one that really starts to develop the doctrine of the apostolic succession because not only had the Gnostics made their own canon, they also began to claim that they were descendants of the apostles because, you ready for it? They had an inner feeling. Today, you would say something like, the Spirit told me. They had an inner witness on the inside that they were the true Christians and the other people weren't true Christians because all they had was a form. All they had was ritual, you know, uh, which wasn't true, but that was the accusation. And so when Irenaeus starts to argue and write about this, he says something spot on that would be good for many of us to, to chew on. He says that the glory of God is most fully realized. Like, the, the, what is the glory of God? The glory of God is a man fully alive. So that to be a Christian is not just an experience of an, of an inner ghostly, emotional, heart, spiritual, in a, in a fuzzy way as it's used today, but our, the whole of our lives. I mean, Christ goes around healing the sick because the physical world is good. So he wants to put it back together. If you don't think the physical world is good, you're waiting for a spiritual return of Jesus to spiritually get you out of here. And that's not even, that's not even congruent with the Lord's Prayer, where he teaches us, uh, as, as, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth. As it is in heaven. So the petition is that heaven would come to earth, not that we would spiritually get vacuumed out of our bodies, or, or even our bodies get taken up so that the earth can be given over to destruction. That's not God's plan. We should chew on some of these things, these, these Gnostic iterations that spill around us. And see that the sacraments, because they're bound to the incarnation and the apostolic succession and ministry, all those things are woven together like a like a, a rope of th- of three strands. You know, we should chew on that, think on that. And and you specifically mentioned the ministry of Jesus, and I think if if what the Gnostics were saying was correct, then his ministry would have ran completely different. It wouldn't have been okay. Let me uh, heal you. It would be you just see people literally just getting vacuumed up to heaven. Take them on up. Like oh well, that's good. He rid you of your. Uh, Go ahead and get rid of this, all this physical stuff. Just bring on up to the... Well, you, you know, know, you see some of that with some of the liberation theology in Latin America 40 years ago. Um, now, there are people that are going to disagree with me on this, but the reports that came out were that there were some people who would convert folks and then kill them because it's better that their spirit go be with God in heaven. That's risky. 
That's some, a <laughs> some interesting strategy right there. So I mean, and, and not all liberation theology is that. By the way, that was that was kind of a you know an aberration. Uh, liberation <laughs> theology tends to go the other way, like a like a utopia kind of thing, which never works. But um, you know, when you when you chew on the way that the gospel is presented, so that your soul can be saved, well, yes, the soul needs to be saved, but Christ has come to save all of creation. The physical world is good. I mean, we're talking about that in a salvation sense. I mean, think about how the covenants relate to each other and the number of people today, and for a long time now, that dismiss the Old Testament. No, the Old Testament is good. The law of God is spiritual. Paul says, I'm the one who's unspiritual. The law has always been good. As a matter of fact, the law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is sure. It, it's, it's like uh, honey from a honeycomb, right? He says it revives my soul. It's, it makes wise the simple. The law still does all of that. And the, the gospel doesn't destroy the law. It fulfills it and presents it to us through the incarnate Christ, which he, he, he quickens in the church. So the spirit in us causes us to obey God instead of trying to observe written, written laws on, on stone. But that doesn't mean you get rid of the written laws on stone. You understand what Christ has done to fulfill it and then how he energizes us through the means of grace to be part of the body. That's all very anti-Gnostic, as opposed to contemporary Gnosticism in its various forms. So the covenants are at violation with each other. And you'll hear it. Why is God so different in the Old Testament and the New? He's not. You just haven't been taught how to read the Bible. So, I think, and especially like what it kind of does is really, with this mindset, and it's weird because, like, and I, say, I was saying, like, kind of relevant, how this heresy is kind of relevant today because it does change your mindset and how even Christianity is kind of operated today and what people think. I actually have a, um, <laughs> I was talking to Adam about this. I have a little, I found an interesting article where he asked like, this guy asked true or false questions to see, are you a, have you been influenced by the Gnostic? Ooh, ideas? okay. All right. So uh, we'll run, I, I was thinking maybe if I could run through them real quick. Go for it. All right. So this is basically, it's take this simple true or false quiz. Ready? It feels like I'm reading like a Facebook, like, that's a quiz, but, yeah. but it, what, what My Little Pony am I? Like, like one of those things. <laughs> Which Marvel superhero are, are you more like? <laughs> All right. Uh, first question was, and it's a true or false. So, prayer is more important than mowing your widowed grandmother's lawn. True or false? And I'll run through them. Sharing the gospel is more important than taking a meal to a new mother and a father who just came home from the hospital. True or false? Doing sacred work, such as preaching or being a missionary, is more important than secular work, such as accounting or being a lawyer. True or false? And he says at the end, it's like, if you answer true to any of these questions, you have been deceived by the ancient heresy of Gnosticism. I don't... What do you think of that? You feel like you get a true or false in that one? I don't think you can do necessarily true or false, because there's... I understand if I... I mean, I don't know the guy who did that. But I can get the dichotomy he's presenting because yeah. it, the dichotomy is the problem. So it's not do you pray or take groceries. You do both. Right. Right. Yeah. The word became flesh. So he's still fully divine and he's fully human at the same time. We don't have to separate them. And we must, we ought not to separate. Well, you can't separate the, you know, the person of Jesus. Neither can you separate the sacraments. So for example, when the, the bread and the wine are consecrated, they become the body and the blood and they remain that way. Even after the service is over, when when the um, 
water that we use to baptize in, that we actually consecrate in the font for baptism, remains holy water even after the act of baptism. You don't, you don't undo what God does. So these things go together. You can't separate them quite the same way, but I, I get the dichotomy, and that is yeah. something to consider. Because I And what really spoke out to me was just the more the fact of like, they're trying to put more of an emphasis like I mean, these questions is more like an emphasis of like you're thinking too much of the spiritual by neglecting the right. physical. That's what he's doing, right? And like I, I, and so like obviously if you answered true or false to or whatever, you answered true to any of them. Like obviously there's some understanding because like why can't I pray and mow the lawn at the same? Right, time? right. You can do them both at the same time. It's not and that um, but <laughs> there and, and the last question about vocations, there are people called into vocational service, and there are people who are called into vocational service. Yes, you heard me say that. Yeah. There are people that are called to vocational service, and there are people that are called to vocational service. What's different is the service, not the vocation. Everybody's called to something. And so you have people that are called into ordained service. You have people that are called into service, but not into ordination, in the same way that you have people that are called to be married. Marriage is a vocation. It's, it's, it, it, you, are, you enter into a holy state. That is, that's uh, solemnity is in that. It's holy matrimony. And then you've got people that are called to be celibate. Both are states, both are callings, okay? And ordination is connected with that as well, as a, as a, as a state that somebody is in. So you can't undo those things. Like, you can't undo marriage any more than you can unconsecrate the elements after the Eucharist. Actual sacrament, sacramental. Act, the actual sacraments here, not just a, a sacramental blessing or the dedication of something. You know, like if we we set up a building and we wanted to use it for church, the church building. We would consecrate the building, but then if we had to vacate it, we would pray in such a way to lift the consecration so it's returned to secular use. But there are the influence of Gnosticism isn't dealing with that as much as it is the denigration of the physical and material world. Right. You know, and that's what we got to be mindful of. And then how that in, impacts the way that we read the Bible, how we worship God, how we celebrate the sacraments. Because in the same way that the incarnate word and the sacraments refuted Gnosticism through the apostolic succession in those days, you know, 1800 years ago. It's the same today. And even when it comes to, um, even when it comes to a practical sense, because I mean, I went to uh, Southwestern Assemblies of God University. Oh man, you named someplace. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, did I receive a degree there? We're not going to talk about that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. I didn't get kicked out or anything. I, okay, I, just left. Okay. I just left after a year. But like, um, oh, gotcha. the one thing that would always, and it was pretty good. The one thing they were always drilling in our heads is the fact of like, everyone is called in the ministry. Mm-hmm. It's just not all of you are going to be pastors. Right. Like, and have that understanding. And when you get that idea and you have that understanding, it's the fact of what you're doing and even what you do in your life, everything you do. And it kicks back into the idea of what is liturgy. Because when Christ came, he didn't come to just take away, you know, he obviously healed people. He didn't just cast them up into heaven. Came right, on. right. But it's, it's the completion. It's to make it so it works together and mm-hmm. to actually fulfill. Right. Because pro- like, God made it this way for a reason, even from the very beginning. But when you don't have an understanding of how that all works, that's when you kind of, you're like, well, we got to fix this problem of the flesh. I mean, God made it. Well, I don't want to say God's wrong, so I'll go ahead and make another God say there's a secret God and he gives hidden knowledge. And that, you know, this yep. other guy's, this guy, this other God's dumb because I know more than apparently a God. I, I mean, we could pull coals in this all day. Well, so, but, but the Gnostics believed, here's what they believed about the church. The church was a collection of individuals, of people 
who had their own personal awakening. They had their own inner experience of gnosis, of knowledge. And because they had that inner experience of knowledge, they would all get together and celebrate their own rites and rituals with their own ministers, whom they said were descended from the apostles, and that they, as, as the, um, the rightful inheritors of the apostles, had extra special insight into mysteries of what the Bible said beyond what the regular, the church Catholic was teaching. And so you can see there the heresy creates a different infrastructure, and the infrastructure creates its own ministry leaders, and the ministry leaders then reinforce the idea that we are a collection of individual people who are individually saved because we're saved so that our spirits can go to heaven. Now you, you take on that and you chew on that for a second and look at the contemporary American landscape yeah. in the church. So you're telling me, Father, Daryl, that um, if I go and I go home today and I feel like I receive a revelation from God and I come to the church with it and you guys say, I don't think that's really a good idea. I think it's a bad idea. Then I should leave here and reject it and start something else somewhere. That, um, I can't do something like that. <laughs> that's, that's about how it shook out, right? That's, that, that's kind of what happens. And you, this, this, is, this is, man, we see it all the time. And the whole notion, let, 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 me, let me back up for a second and say it this way. That, that's the Gnostic perspective of the church. But what is the Christian understanding of the church? What is the biblical understanding of the church? The church is the body of Christ. There is no such thing as individual salvation. You are saved because you've been grafted into, you've been added into the body of Christ by baptism. Paul is emphatic about this in Romans chapter 6 and then in Colossians and then again in Titus. He's, you couldn't be an Israelite in the Old Covenant without circumcision. Well, we don't have types and shadows. This is one of the other problems we have today. So many Christians and church leaders live with types and shadows. I give an example, and I know that this is going to be difficult for some folks. Baby baptism, infant, not baptism, dedication, in, dedicating your, your infant, dedicating your kid is not new covenant. That's old covenant. That's type and shadow, right? But that dedication was even part, part of baptism. So let me, let me just step back for a second and com- contrast that, the Gnostic perspective of the church, of a collection of individuals, to the church. What, what is, what, did this, what does the Scripture teach the church is? The church is the body of Christ, and we are made the body of Christ by baptism. Paul's emphatic. That's why baptism is a sacrament, and it's the, a means of grace, the means of grace for being incorporated into Christ. Romans 6, Titus, in the letter to Titus, and then in Colossians. Paul is clear, Ephesians, he's clear that to be baptized is to be engrafted into Christ. So salvation is not individual, it's corporate. It's the body of Christ that is saved. And we are nourished and fed as the body of Christ at the table through the Eucharist. The Gnostics rejected baptism, or they had some form of it, but they rejected that it was part adding you into the body of Christ, and they reject the Eucharist. When we look at what it is to be in Christ and to be part of him, the church then is the continuation of Christ on the planet, his body. Two very different pictures there of what it is to be, to be saved, to be a Christian. And so when you think about it in those, those categories, one being very biblical and one being the ancient heresy, it opens things up for us today. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, somewhere along the line. I, I think uh, the really interesting thing with Gnosticism is how it practically worked out, like in everyday life. Like, what does it mean 
and you really ended up in like two really weird opposite, opposite like polar edges of the spectrum. So you ended up with some who were like, I need to, like the physical doesn't matter, so I need to deny it. I need to do everything that I can to deny it. I need to fast. I need to even go without water. I need to purposefully not give myself things that make me happy because the body's evil, therefore everything associated mm-hmm. with is evil as well. And it's, it's really interesting. Then you have the other side of the spectrum where they ran with, well, the body's evil anyway, so why should I be shocked if the body does evil things? So you could go and do what you want to. You could, uh, you could go and commit whatever physical sin you wanted to, whatever, whether it was a, a sexual sin or it was some, other, some physical sin, something that is a sin against the body. You could do those things according to that other camp and, and be okay because, well, after all, my body is bad, my body's terrible, and my spirit is what matters. Yeah, this thing can't be fixed anyway, so... Yeah, you end up with radical libertinism, and you end up with uh, detrimental ascesis. Ascesis, so an ascetic, an ascetic life. Somebody who lives a dis- like a Nazarite. Somebody, John the Baptist would be an ascetic. Elijah would be an ascetic. Somebody who lives a very ascetic life, but then they carry it in a way that they're actually hurting themselves instead of living a life of consecration. They're different. And you, you get those two extremes. A contemporary form of, of what you're talking about, where people just give in to the lust of the flesh, would be Rasputin. Rasputin, that that Russian monk. Um, you know, he's he's a character study, and he was just uh, what a hundred and was it 1917? He was killed. He, I mean, he's just over a hundred years ago in Russia. So you get some very distinct perspectives of radical ascesis and then the libertinism. Both of those end up with that whole notion. They're coming out of that that faulty concept. Salvation is spiritual because the physical world is bad instead of, and, and by spiritual, we wouldn't mean it the way the New Testament does, but that's how people use the word spiritual today. It just goes to show like when you start tampering with these ideas, how much it affects everything else, even for the future going on. Nothing new under the sun. It, 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 it's true. So there's no new errors in the church, whether it's in doctrine or practice, that we don't see in the first several centuries of Christian history. Even for like the, and it's even crazy, even the structure of it, where it's, they talk about how, when it, when it's the idea of like emphasis on direct experience, where it allows for like this idea of like whatever teaching, because then if someone else feels like they receive something, it's like, well, how do you know which one's right or what's true? Like you mm. need, you still at the end of the day need some sort of authority or verification to be able to say, or else you're going to have all these other I mean, if someone comes up with an idea that's something new or crazy, it's like, wow, great, let's accept it, let's go in. Like, eventually, they're going to start disagreeing with each other naturally yeah, anyway. Yeah, philosophically, we see that in postmodernism. Exactly. Well, your truth, my truth, his truth, her truth, uh, you know, however you... You can't even say his or her truth now for some of them. Uh, so, I mean, <laughs> you, you, you've got that whole... Plur, it's pluralism in, in a very negative way. So, when you're governed by your individual experience and you see... The Holy Spirit told me, the Holy Spirit told me, the Holy Spirit told me. No, he didn't, because Scripture is pretty clear about whatever the topic is that person typically thinks. And it's even when we go through our, a few weeks ago, when we're going through how to even read Scripture and go through it, it's the fact of, like, if you feel like you're experiencing something or you think of something, one, understand that, like, you can naturally come up with some ideas that that might be wrong, because the mind just thinks. Right. But then what do you do? You compare it to what? The Scripture. You start off by doing that. And, like... If but see, that's the thing with the Gnostics, Caleb. They just changed it. They rejected <laughs> books. They said, we don't use those. Yeah. So look at, look at the various Christian cults who have changed the translations, or they have um, added books 
uh, like the Mormons adding the Pearl of Great Price, Book Mormon and whatnot. That, and when I say added books, that doesn't mean the Apocrypha, by the way, because we talked about that uh, a couple months ago. The church has always read those ecclesiastical books, always. What they disagreed about was how inspired they were. So even as Anglicans, we will read from them on a Sunday. They're part of our morning prayer, evening prayer, sometimes Sunday reading. They're good books. We just have disagreements in Anglicanism, in the same way the early church did. How inspired are they? So this wouldn't include those texts. But look at how the Gnostics do what they do. And you see the same thing today. Covenants are against each other, different collection of books, its own ministry, its own concept of being saved, no sacraments. And I think the difference is, you see, uh, today, I think it's been so widely accepted that, hey, this, the canon is our canon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you don't really see that. What you do see is it may be in their Bible, but those pages are pretty fresh. Right. You know, like those are the, the no, page, no underlining there. The path less traveled for sure. Um, and I, it's, it's a lot of the same thing. So I think if we find ourselves uh, not necessarily um, picking piece by piece, but being very selective in what we're reading and not reading our text as a whole to right. understand it, uh, that's, we're, we're essentially doing the same thing, just not on purpose. Uh, they set out to do this on purpose. They took these things out, put some, you know, arranged things a little differently. Uh, but I think we do many of this, the, the same things by ignoring large portions of our Bible because we either don't like what it says or, well, that's, you know, that's not for today or I don't understand it. Like, and, and there's ways to get around some of those, like, I don't understand it. It's to, to learn about it, but well, let me, we have to let be me, intentional. Let me bring this up to contemporary movements because Gnosticism is not evangelicalism. I need to say that. At least not the evangelical awakening with the Wesleys and Jonathan Edwards and those fellows in the 1700s, because sometimes people put those together, because they did emphasize, and the Pietists, you know, the early Pietists anyway, they did emphasize personal conversion. They emphasized personally loving the Lord, being transformed on the inside. You know, the love of God flowing in and over the heart. Wesley talks about his heart being strangely warmed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and all of those guys had very strong Christian sacramental lives. They cared for the poor. Wesley even put together a, a micro-loan for the people in his societies where he would loan them money, small loans, without any interest, because the scripture says don't charge interest. So one of the ways, and I want to bring that up, because how do you know if someone, more to the point than the, the, the little quiz there, <laughs> people who don't care for the poor, but they want to keep emphasizing salvation, there's the influence of Gnosticism. People who won't uh, live a life of consecrated holiness to God. They won't dedicate and live, a lot, and whether that's you know sexual purity or taking care of themselves physically by getting diet and exercise. You know whether uh, gluttony, gluttony, drunkenness, these kinds of things. They, their spirits saved. All of that is influence of these Gnostic ideas. You do have segments of the contemporary church that throw off the sacraments. Well, what do you see typically in those those groupings, right? they start to fall into some of these other errors. Not all the time, because it's very difficult to do that when you've got 36,000 denominations. How do you, or 9,000, somebody said now, either way. You know? <laughs> um, you know, so you can't say it's a one-to-one ratio. So that's one of the benefits of looking at this historically, is to say, here's what they were doing. Here are the characteristics that they made it bad. We need to make sure that when we observe these, it's not a matter of if, when we observe these, that we can respond kindly, scripturally, and with the wisdom of the church to help our, our friends and ourselves, for that matter, 
you know, not fall into these these errors. But I think even one of the bigger things is the fact of once you start doing that and you start to when you, if you don't realize how much Gnosticism is actually kind of being incorporated in little ways and like even understanding these heresies as a whole, like how much their teachings influence other things that are happening in life. Like even when Jesus was dealing with the uh oh no, the Pharisees, when he was talking about honoring your father and your mother. Yeah. Where it's like, if you don't understand that the concept of the physical and you don't understand that we, it's not just you and individually, you and God, that stuff makes more sense to say, well, I mean, I'm going to figure out different ways to do this. But it's like, when you look back to the establishment of like, honor your father and your mother, what is your father and mother? It's something physically that made you and created you. So should there be no connection? No, there should be. And so we need to consider like the relationships that we have with people. Because in order for Christianity to be effective in our world today, we need to be always considering not just ourselves, but as the collective of the church as a whole. And even that's the whole point of it. So we can't just be separating that idea. This um, this takes us into the second group of people that we're going to talk about, the Montanists. Because the Gnostics and the Montanists, and this is the case today, these kinds of folks, the mentality that they get is that they are the prophets. They stand on the prophetic margins of the culture, prophetic margins of the church to call the church into fullness, to call the church to repent. And so the Gnostics are like, they're emphasizing personal inner experience and excluding these other, excluding the very means of grace themselves. Mm. Then you get the Montanists who are going to so overemphasize the gifts of the Spirit and, and go off into super bizarre, well, they, they go into radical ascesis. So the Montanists, very, 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 what you would call almost like holiness movement today, um, and then very, very, very spiritual prophecy, speaking in tongues, casting out demons, a whole, a whole slew of miraculous events that surrounded them. And when you look at these, the way that these things dovetail together, there's always this undue emphasis that creates these different issues, you know. So that's, these are things for us to be, to be mindful of and aware of. So what, so I guess that kind of generalizes more like, what were the Montanists all about? Or at least like, who's kind of... Heading it up, well, for creating it. Montanism. So Montanus, yeah. <laughs> that was his name, Montanus. Yeah, yeah. So Montanus. This is a difficult one because unlike the Gnostics, where we have so much information about all the variations of it, the the Montanists, most of what we know is written not by them, but by the people arguing against them. Tertullian being the exception, because this is one of the reasons he's not a saint. Uh, Tertullian, towards the end of his life, joins the Montanists. He goes over to them. So in Montanist, so I'm saying that like what we know is what they said about him, but Montanist would prophesy and he would say things like, I am the Holy Spirit or I am the Lord. And the way that it was being understood, not just by the people arguing against him, but by the people who were following him, is that he legitimately was some kind of, you know, spirit empowered, spirit quickened man. So that he would say things like, as the way some modern Pentecostal preachers were saying 30 years ago. That's in a lot of some of their books. They, they, he would say things like, don't follow Jesus anymore, follow the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So in the same way that you've got the Gnostics setting the Old and New Testament against each other, you end up with the Montanists who are setting this age and dispensation of the Spirit against even the New Testament. And so the Spirit will tell us new things and reveal to us new things. And as Vincent of Larens says, the heretics always go scripture, 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 and then miracle, 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 miracle. That's how they generate what they're doing. 
it never fails. And so when you've got Montanus and he gets his two women, Maximilla and Priscilla, I believe, who are his prophetesses, who prophesy with him, and they fall into ecstatic trances, and the people are collapsing and they're speaking in tongues, and it's like a whole, it's like a, a people are just falling out all over the place. Well, what's the problem? Well, they create unnecessary division in the church and reject the church as she had been by saying they're not holy and they don't have the gifts of the Spirit. So then they go out and they create their own organization. They create their own ministers, and they say that they are the ones with the Holy Spirit, they are the ones that have received the, the real gospel, and they are the ones who are preaching the truth of God as, they, as they're proving their truth with prophecy, yeah. with signs, with wonders, with tongues and miracles. How do they end? Because they, they sort of morph into another group we, we can talk about another time. But they start to, to lose a lot of momentum and, because they began to prophesy that the New Jerusalem was going to descend out of the sky and hover over the Middle East. Yes. The New Jerusalem oh. would descend out of the sky and hover over the Middle East. And so when their false prophecy didn't happen is when you start to see people kind of recede away from it. But the characteristics of Montanism, I mean, the, the emphasis on spiritual gifts, the creation of their own ministers, uh, they ordained women, when they, and, you know, nobody, nobody was doing that um, at the time. They, they said the rest of the church was wrong, and so they created their own structure. I mean, come on, Father Darrell, you can't think of a time in modern day history where people are giving prophecies and they, you know, they're just not coming true, right? Um, well, <laughs> well, I don't know if we'll touch that one fully. That one's a little hot. But look at, look, look, at these, look at these two movements. Look at Gnosticism and look at Montanism and how they both create their own infrastructure to support their perspectives. And that's why I said a couple weeks ago what I did, that denominationalism is heretical because it, cre it takes something that's true. So, for example, is salvation, like, deeply personal? Yeah. Are, should we have the assurance of the Spirit filling our heart that we, we are children of God and to pray, you know, Abba, Father, to, to cry? Yes, absolutely. That, that should be happening. For the Montanists, should we expect the quickening of the Holy Spirit to do things beyond the normal, so to speak? Words of prophecy and, and healing and deliverance and, the, and all the... Yes, but does that mean that we have to take those things and then redefine the rest of the church by it, and then reject the church and create our own. No, no. Not only is that heretical, it's also schismatic, and that's the kind of thing that Paul's referring to in 1 Corinthians 3 when he says that the fire of the day of judgment will try every person's works. And the destruction that God will pour out upon those people who destroy the church, and that what's important there, destroying the church there is schism in 1 Corinthians. That's what he's talking about, heresy and schism. The person who destroys the church, their judgment isn't meted out until that day. God doesn't necessarily do it right now because he's trying and working and wooing to bring everybody to repentance. So I say that because, I mean, I don't know anybody who can read the first five or six centuries of Christian history and look at the heresies there and not, if they're a contemporary, contemporary person in any capacity, and recognize that somehow they have believed some portion of those. Just because of the fractured nature of, of Christianity. Oh, right I, and even yeah. myself, I go through. When yeah. I first started looking through, I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm a heretic. Reading, <laughs> reading, yeah, reading these heresies is probably one of the most convicting thing and seeing how different, there's been times in my life where it wasn't imbalanced. And I think that's the biggest thing they're lacking is 
balance other than some of them is just it's just crazy. Like they, they're right. they're just wrong. Well, and that's where the grace of God kicks in because He's wooing us and calling us and drawing all of us from wherever we were closer and closer to Himself. And in the process of doing that and becoming more conformed into the image of Jesus, the more we realize these kinds of things and we repent and we 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 are strengthened and we're healed and you know we move forward. So I mean, if you want to take these two these two heretical perspectives, uh, teachings. How do you guard against Gnosticism? The sacraments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The sacraments. How do you guard against Montanism? The apostolic succession and the sacraments. You, no one has the authority to go out and create their own church structures. You don't have it. That takes us back to the apostolic succession. Nobody has the authority to reject books from the canon. We don't have it. As you mentioned, that's not really something we argue that's as a hot of a topic today. Practic um, Theologically, but practically it is. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, there are certain things that are the di almost a direct counterbalance to these. So if the solution to Gnosticism is the sacraments, the incarnate, the incarnate word and the sacraments, the solution to Montanism is the unity of the church. You can't divide and submit to your spiritual leaders. If your spiritual leaders are telling you, hey, I don't think that's the Holy Spirit, you ought to stop. And then take both of those and look at them in this, in, in this light so you're not living in types and shadows. Baby dedication is not New Testament. doesn't mean you can't pray over your kids and dedicate them. But the old covenant you circumcised, and the new covenant you baptize. We have whole groups of Christians that live in types and shadows. They don't live in realities. The only concept they have of spiritual reality is montanist. It's montanistic. It's through manifestations or through, through, through enthusiasm. No. The reality of the new covenant and of the gospel is mediated through the means of grace, specifically the sacraments, the sacramentals, and obviously the preaching of the word. I mean, these, these are, this is how the Spirit quickens and shores up the church, and the Holy Spirit isn't contradictory. He's not going to lead the church one way for, for over a millennia and then cause her to break into a million pieces. That's the flesh. That's the devil. The Spirit of the Lord doesn't do that. So we go back and we look at the Gnostics and we look at the Montanists and let people study and pray, make their and see what this see what they see there. And I think even for the like, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say let's do a weekly challenge, but I mean, <laughs> as you go through your when you start thinking about this or after you hear this, like start looking at like what you believe and what you see, especially in the world around you, of like how much this might have actually been influenced. How much do you see Gnosticism ideology exists in your culture? Or even not uh, modernist uh, thoughts like still exist in how you view God and how you view the church, and to see if there's some if there's things that you start to see that are pretty close to it, then well, I mean, work on it. Like, don't just see something and then ignore it. But no, mm -hmm. yeah, that's true. And uh, when I was uh, talking to Caleb about this uh, earlier, I, we were talking about these, specifically these two heresies and how. Um, it doesn't look weird today, like when we look at it, but when we, we look back and we think of, you know, um, ancient people, you know, thriving around and like prophesying, speaking in tongues, and like, all, like run, doing all these things, like, oh, that's weird. You, you, like we look at that, like, oh, that's odd. Um, and I, I think so many times we look at things and we're like, oh, that's modern. And it's like our, our, it's almost like our blinders or the lenses that we look at things through like just our age and, and what we, we think today and we, we, oh, that's different, but it's not. It, it's just the only difference is 
everything about the situation isn't foreign because you live in the same age. But in many ways, when you, if you just take off like, okay, let me strip the ideas, these modern ideas I have, my modern lenses, and let me just look at this for what it is and strip off the, the comfort of just modern. And it starts to look different when you start to really think about what you believe and what you think. Exactly. Even when you start to look at what other people believe, like you're going to sit here and tell me that Gnosticism has nothing to do with Buddhism that exists today. And I'm not sitting here trying to attack people, but I'm like, you're going to see a lot of similarities that exist there of like how to understand even truth and what it is itself. There are no, there are no new heresies. There aren't any. So whether we're talking about the Gnostics or the Montanists, and I'll say this, I have read books by particular theologians who look back at the Montanists and they say, well, that was just a revival group that the church rejected. And so people will read the whole Christian church history to say, oh, well, look, the Montanists were the first group of people who tried to bring revival to the church, but the church killed it. And that's why every couple hundred years, there's a new revival that the Holy Spirit tries to bring to the church, but the church always quenches the Holy Spirit. Well, no. Like, no. How much of that, and we could go into a whole thing about yeah. revival and transformation and awakenings and, and, and how the Holy Spirit works and speaks to the church and the proper understanding of what revival and transformation are, awakening and whatnot. And I, I know we don't have time for that today. But to say we cannot go back and, and look at what, there was a big megachurch pastor a couple of years ago who said we needed to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament and stop reading the Old Testament <laughs> and, just, and just use the New. What is that? That's Gnosticism. Because what you're saying is that the law of God is hard, it's difficult, and nobody understands it. So they may not come out and say there's two gods. They're not going to say the same things that Marcion was saying, but they're going to impose the same practices, you see? And that's why we started a few months ago talking about the apostolic practices and then just the practices of the church. And when you change practice, you will change doctrine. And we can't help but see these things when we go back and we look at them. So let's not re- let's not go back and dig up Montanism and say, "Oh, that was a revival." <laughs> well, there may have been a, some positive things that came out of that, but no, no, we we can't do it like. It. And I tell you, since I'm I brought it up, since I'm the one that brought it up, you guys didn't, so you know, so nobody get mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> Find me a revival in the past 100 years that lasted for more than two or three weeks, that had lasting positive impact for the majority of the people that were associated with it. Find me, find me one. I'm not saying there aren't there. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying find me one and then compare that to the early church and the early church renewals and the, and the expansion of the church in the past. I, I tell you what, Adam and I, I mentioned this, we were talking about this a little while ago. When we get in a couple months or whenever to talking about Anglican history, before the jurisdiction of the Pope is imposed upon the church in England, which happens in 660 at the Synod of Whitby. You have multiple times in the history of England, it's not even England yet, but in the history of those islands where the gospel advances and there's great conversion, and then you get a repaganization from barbarian tribes that come through. And this happens over and over again. It's like the tide. It happens multiple times. And it'll happen even after they come under the jurisdiction of the Pope. But you see this taking place. It is not good for us to go back and to read those things and say, oh, look, there was massive revival, and then to, to use our contemporary understanding for that. We can't do it. We have to see it for what it is and let it speak to us and what the Lord was doing in those times. I don't know if that makes sense or not. You guys are staring at me. 
No, no. I, okay. no, I agree. It's All the right. concept of like those who don't learn from their history are doomed to repeat it. Yeah. Where it's like, accept and understand. Like the church said this was heresy. It's heresy. Right. right. But that's, and again, that's go back to another episode where we start talking about authority. Right. It's, you got to have ability. a church. You have to have a yeah. church that can make those decisions. So that's right. That's, it's almost like as if when we make these podcasts, we set up. So if someone starts from the beginning. Yeah. And then they're going to have a better understand what we're talking about. Man, that looks like it was on purpose. <laughs> yeah, almost. <laughs> but I think we covered these topics pretty well today, um, especially for an idea. And it, it, definitely enough, if you want to look into it, look into it more. Next week, we're going to be talking about two more heresies. Those are going to be about the Dantonist and the Aryans. Not Aryans as we think of like Nazis. Yeah, not Nazi yeah. Aryans, different ones. So... The um, I'll I'll say this as kind of a, a foreshadow: the Montanists and the Dantonists end up connecting, and they become a group that exists for about three hundred years. So by the time you're getting into the councils that we talked about, the group of Montanists still exists. They join forces. So to fight the, against the evil. Right. This this whole idea of creating different structures, you know, that creates perpetuity. So the Aryans they will exist for four hundred, five hundred years. I mean, they will exist for a long time. So that even the, the you know the early evangelizations that take place amongst Germanic, Germanic tribes and then into Spain, those are Arians. They're not preaching the gospel. They're not preaching, you know, as we understand it, they're preaching a Christ who was created. And this stuff is super important because we are either going to be part of Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church that's adhering to the faith that was once for all given to the saints, or we're going to hold on to an aberration and think that the aberration is the truth because it has signs and wonders because I have an inner feeling, because my church is 200 years old. Careful. That's hot. You're going to burn somebody. (laughs) Just chew on it. Just think on it. Yeah. I mean, I always do. I always think. (laughs) (laughs) And and another thing before we we get off of here, uh, we were talking about this a little bit beforehand, uh, about like questions and stuff like that uh, from people. And it's not, I don't want people to think it's just a formality, like, oh, that is a good segue into uh, ending your podcast. Like that is a legitimate invitation. Um, we don't, as much as we enjoy sitting here and talking to each other, um, and I hope that comes through to, to the listeners, um, we, we, we want people to listen to it. And if there's any questions that you have or things that you want us to talk about, really like send it to us and feel free to ask those questions. Even if they seem like a, you know, a stupid question, just make another Gmail, you know, and send it to us. So we don't know who it is. I, I you know, I mean, whatever if, it, you have to if do. it helps me and I'll record myself asking dumb questions to father Daryl and then. You can see, wow, this bonus. guy's an idiot. I'm not. I'm not going to be the dumbest guy in the. In that can the be room. the bonus. Uh, <laughs> bonus episode. Caleb, that's the title. But Caleb's dumb questions. <laughs> but, but yeah, definitely. Even how serious we are, we literally threw out a bonus episode because someone sent in a list of questions. We're like, man, these are, they're they they need to be considered. Mm-hmm. Um, but thank you again for listening to us, everybody. Uh, again, if you want to send in questions, you can send them to. They can send them to me. Daryl, D A R R Y L, at Ascension, A S C E N S I O N W V dot org, or to you, Caleb. Me at Caleb Ridgeway. That's C A L E B R I D G E W A Y at gmail.com. Thank you all again for listening to us. We hope you all have a wonderful, wonderful week. Enjoy the Ascension this week. Woo! Thursday is the Ascension Day. Come on now. It's going to be Friday when they hear this, though. Oh. Well. Enjoy uh, enjoy Ascension uh, Sunday yes. on Sunday because it's the Ascension Tide. <laughs> <laughs> all right, see you all next week.